Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, that we can come together, Lord, and uh, and we can talk, we can laugh, we can um, we can fellowship together, Lord, with you. That you're here in our midst, Lord, and uh, we're not just talking about a God that's afar off, Lord, but we're here this morning to meet with the God who saved us and who calls us by name. And so we ask you, Father, to be in our midst. We pray that you would uh, quicken us. We we pray that you would just light our hearts on fire, Lord, as we begin to study the Word of God this morning and we uh, begin to allow you to speak to us and allow you to to teach us and to change us and to apply your truth to our lives, Lord. We we just thank you so much, Lord. We, we are indebted to you, Lord. We could never, ever even begin to realize what you've done for us and, and we could never repay it. But we thank you, Lord, for the, the, the precious Holy Spirit that teaches us and, and, and that helps us, Lord. And and we just pray that you would have your way, Lord, in these meetings, in uh, what you're doing with the men in this church, and uh, and what we have to go through this morning, Lord. We just pray your will be done, and we give you thanks. We give you honor in advance, Lord, and we just pray that you would uh, bless the teaching of your word and, and what we hear this morning. Um, we ask you to bless our wives. We pray that you'd be with our kids, Lord, that you would uh, stay with the stuff, keep it in our homes, Lord, everything in order. and. And we ask that you would just honor this time that we've set aside, Lord. It's, it's a Saturday morning, but we give it to you, Lord, and pray that you would bless it and that you would make it worth our while. And we just thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, you can open up to Second um, Thessalonians chapter 2 and uh, also Revelation chapter 13. And, uh, and, and we'll go to Revelation 6 also in between the two. But if you're in Revelation 13, it's not too hard to find 6. So we've been talking about Satan. And quite interesting. It's been um, really insightful to, to study this for myself again and to refresh. And, um, and, and then it's just been fun for me, at least on these Saturday mornings, to go through the stuff and... Uh, you know, we don't just learn about the enemy. We learn about ourselves. We learn about uh, the nature of the war that we're in. We learn about the Lord. We learn about redemption. We learn about the power of the blood. Uh, there, there, there's so much for us in this to, 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 to glean and to understand. And, and so um, it, it's been a joy. Now, the first week we talked about who the devil is. Last time we were together, a week ago from this morning, um, we talked about uh, what he is up to now. What is he doing? What is he about in the world? And so we talked about how he uh, is about, first of all, deception. He is the master deceiver, and he's very clever, crafty, and he knows how to deceive, and so he is out to deceive as much as he can um, in every way that he can, whoever he can. That's uh, his, his M.O. Also, not just deception, but also accusation. He accuses the brethren, we read in Revelation chapter 12. He accuses us to ourselves, he accuses us to the Father, and he accuses us to one another. And he's very good at that. He's, he's very good at getting us under the condemnation of thinking that God is finished with us, or that God is far from us, or that God is judging us, and as he just shows us our sin. It's very simple for him to do, because we're sinful, you know. Um, he accuses us to the Father, but he has... No place there if you're in Christ because his witness stands alone 
and he accuses us to each other. And then the third thing that he is up to is persecution. Um, if he cannot deceive you and if he cannot accuse you, then he will afflict you as much as he is allowed to. You know, and that's the key word there is it's as much as he is allowed to because he cannot touch you uh, one, one hair breadth further than what God allows, you know, but he will take every uh, nanometer of that that he can, can get, you know, uh, to, to seek to afflict. And, and then there's really one more, and it's where we're going this morning. One more, one more, there's a number four to that as far as what he is up to now, but it also answers the next question. And the next question is, what is his destiny? And so to end up there with his destiny, we look at the fourth thing, really, that he is up to presently. What is he doing right now? And number four is, is subjection. To just keep it in one word, uh, it's to bring the world into subjection to himself. Now, the nature of a rebel, such as Satan is, and if you've been following in this study, if you know anything about Satan, then that, that's what he is. He is a rebel. He was created as an angel, and he rebelled against God's authority and uh, became what he now is. And the nature of a rebel is, is that they are all, they're all alike. They're, first of all, they are motivated by self-will. They're, they're all about themselves. It has nothing to do with anyone else or anything else. It's just all about what's best for me, self-will. They are empowered then by self-effort. Once they're motivated towards a goal, something that they want, they then produce all of the effort and, and, and craft necessary to accomplish the goal or the ambition that they have. So self-will always followed by self-effort. And the reason for it all is because they desire self-glory. That is to to accomplish their task, and to somehow seek to enjoy the thing that they are trying to attain. Now, also true with all rebels and, and every rebellious cause is that it can never be presented that way. The cause of a rebel, the desire of a rebel, can never be set forth as, this is all about me. I'm doing this for myself. I'm doing, it, it always has to be shrouded in something else, something that's noble, something that's philanthropic, something that's universally beneficial, you know. And thus we discover that with Satan, you know. He didn't come forth outwardly and say, hey, I'm, I want to destroy everything that God made. <laughs> he came forth and, and, and he was setting everything forth as though he was going to make things better is that if he was in control, things would be better than if God was in control. And, and so he shrouded his self-will and his self-effort and his self-glory in something that appeared to be something else. And so thus we understand that the root of his rebellion was envy, ambition, pride, you know, exaltation for himself, and that it was masked in the greater good of creation. Every successful rebel wins the affection of those whom he is trying to control. We study history and we understand that all of the despots of times past did not come in with the strong arm of dictatorship. They came in with flatteries. They came in winning the affections of those whom they sought to rule over. We understand that concerning Hitler. He didn't take power. He was given power. 
Same with Stalin. And with every other despotic ruler all the way through history, self-will, self-effort, and self-glory shrouded in flatteries brought upon the ability to deceive, thus empowering a, a rebellion. Now, also true with every rebel, including our adversary, the devil, who we're talking about, they will continue to flatter and, you know, lie and deceive until the point where either they are vulnerable to overthrow or they feel that they have enough of a stronghold on things that now they can usurp. And so flattery, you know, deception will ensue until the time that it's time to rein it in, pull the, the noose tight to gain control. And that is ultimately the the nature of this concept of subjection that we're talking about as we speak of what is Satan up to now is that his ultimate desire is to bring the world into subjection to himself. And he will do that from the shadows as long as necessary, but at the proper time, he will, as a serpent strikes, he will strike and he will usurp and and, and then he will be known fully for what he is, you know, uh, the liar, the, the adversary, you know. He was unsuccessful in heaven. We understand that. He was cast out. He was unable to rebel there and to take over. Where was he sent? To earth, where he now resides. And he will do the same thing in earth that he sought to do in heaven. And that is to have absolute and total control. And so that's what we look at this morning. And, 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 and hopefully we get to get all the way through it and we see what his destiny is. Um, but it's so interesting to look at this. So I've asked you to turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 2 because it's here that we discover the full agenda. What is the ultimate agenda or the subjection, the, you know, the point where he grabs total world domination How does that come about and what does it look like? And so we begin in 2 Thessalonians and in chapter 2. And uh, Paul writes, and it's all all Thessalonians. um, 2 Thessalonians is about the end times. Um, They were a church that was interested in, in end times things. And Paul gives the most detailed teaching to the Thessalonians about end times things. And so here in chapter 2, it's the same. And he says, Now we beseech you, brethren, By the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. And that's a reference to the second coming and also to the rapture of the church. When he talks about our gathering together unto him. He says that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. In other words, you know, you you guys are thinking that the the day of the Lord is here, that the wrath of God has come, whether you're thinking that because of something that's going on in your own mind, or because of something that someone said, or because of a letter that you received that seemingly had my signature. He's like, no, 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 that day isn't here yet. We're not in that time yet. Verse 3, he says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, 
the son of perdition. Now, the day of the Lord that he's talking about is not a not a day like we would talk of a day as 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 a, you know a date on a calendar. Neither is it a moment, you know, uh, necessarily. But the day of the Lord, scripturally, speaks of the period of time where God pours out his wrath upon the world. It's the, it's the day of the Lord, the day of his wrath. It, it entails the rapture, it entails the tribulation, and it entails the second coming. Um, and, and that whole span of time is, is, is at least seven years long. So that day speaks of that period, that time when all of the culmination of things come to a head, come to a conclusion. And he says that that day will not come except first there come a falling away. And, and there's two different ways that this verse is, is looked at. Some, some say that this is speaking of an apostasy, that many will turn away from the faith. And, and the Bible says that. You know, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, in the last days, uh, many will turn away from the faith, having itching ears, and will turn aside to lies, the deception of Satan. Uh, you know, and, and, and we see that throughout. Jesus said that because iniquity would abound, the love of many would wax cold. And so th- there probably will be an apostasy in the last days. The other thing that people have, have seen in this verse is that this, uh, this, this falling away, the word in the Greek is the word departure. And, and so some have sought to make this a, a reference to the rapture, that there will be the rapture first. You know, I don't know necessarily. Uh, I see both things. But he says that there will come a falling away first. And then he says, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And so here's our first clue in terms of how Satan is going to grab control of the whole world. He's going to use this agent known as, here, the man of sin. Other places, and the the most common name that's given to him in Scripture is the Antichrist. A one-world ruler, a one-world dictator that will come on the scene, that will be able to bring the whole world into subjection to himself, and then to accomplish Satan's purpose, his ultimate purpose, for bringing the whole world under his control. Throughout the Bible, there are many places where an antichrist-like figure is shown to us. The first one is in Genesis chapter 11, the man Nimrod. And and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and he was a mighty one on the earth. And, and, And then you read about what happened at Babel, and he was able to unify the whole world under one language and one purpose, in rebellion against God. They, they, they sought to build a tower to reach up to heavens. It's absolute rebellion. God's way goes from heaven to earth. Man's way, religion, goes from earth to heaven, trying to reach God by what we do. God's way is, is God reaching us by what he did, heaven to earth. See, so it's, it's a picture of rebellion, unified under a leader. So Nimrod is a prefiguring, kind of a foreshadowing of what Satan is ultimately seeking to do. Now, if Satan had his way, I believe Nimrod would have been the Antichrist. Empowered by Satan, controlling the whole world, bringing it to its final point of rebellion and, and war against God. But it wasn't. Why? 
because God intervened. The plan wasn't full yet. And so he confused the languages and time goes on. But Satan would always try. Again, we would see it through Pharaoh in Egypt, the most powerful kingdom in the world. Again, we would see it in Babylon through Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. And and there's some great pictures in the book of Daniel that show Nebuchadnezzar as a foreshadowing of the Antichrist that will come. You know, and, and we've seen it even in our history. I believe that if Satan could have, he would have had Hitler have been the Antichrist or, or any, anyone else, you know, but he hasn't been able to do it as of yet. But we have seen his agenda at work, you know, seeking to bring forth the man of sin uh, from the beginning and ultimately he will. So I, I, wanna, I want you to um, skip a few verses. Don't skip a few verses yet. Look at verse 4. Because this is what, what this man of sin, what is the man of sin, the Antichrist, going to do? It says that he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And that is ultimately what the Antichrist will do when he comes into power. He will oppose everything that is called God. He will exalt himself against all that is called God, and he himself will demand to be worshipped as God. And he'll sit in the temple as such. Throughout the Bible, we read about what, what, what the Bible calls the abomination of desolation. Daniel writes about it. Jesus mentions it in the Gospels. You know, and it all speaks of this moment when Antichrist goes into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, <clears throat> declares himself to be God, and demands to be worshipped. And that's the event that the Bible calls the abomination that brings desolation. Uh, it will be the pinnacle and the culmination of Satan's attempt to grab all authority and all power and all glory on planet earth. And so that's it. And then Paul says, verse 5, he says, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? We'll skip a few verses and we will come back to verse um, 6. But where does the Antichrist, this one world ruler that's coming, where does he get his power? Because he is fully man. He is not an angel. He is not a demonic apparition. He is a man. So where does this man, the man of sin, get his power? Notice with me in verse 9. He says, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. is That he will get his power from Satan directly and fully uh, that that's where it comes from. In verse 10, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So his deception will be strong, it will be powerful, it will be total, and it will reach those that have rejected the gospel. He tells us that here. He says that they received not the love of of the truth. And so he gets his power from Satan himself. And we'll see that again as we get to Revelation chapter 13. So the question is, if Satan has had this agenda from the beginning, 
And if he has sought throughout different times in man's history to bring this to a head, why hasn't he succeeded? Why wasn't Nimrod successful in his attempt? Why wasn't Nebuchadnezzar able to, 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 to complete it? Why wasn't Hitler you know, successful? The answer is in verse 6, if you look back with me at verse 6. He says, and now you know what withholds or what restrains or what has caused him, essentially, to be unsuccessful in his attempt. That he might be revealed in his time. In other words, Paul's saying there's something restraining. There's a reason why he hasn't been successful. And why is that? He says, verse 7. He says, for the mystery of iniquity does already work. Now, circle that phrase. Remember that phrase. I don't know what version you're reading or if it even uses that phrase or or changes it around a little bit. But the mystery of iniquity. What is he talking about when he says the mystery of iniquity? Very simply, he's talking about the plan, the agenda of Satan to take over and dominate this world. That's the mystery of iniquity. It's the same thing that Satan has been seeking to do from the beginning. And Paul says the plan is already in motion. It's already working, this mystery of iniquity. Only, he goes on to say, he who now restrains will restrain until he is taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. In other words, there's something that's restraining, that's keeping Satan from accomplishing his goal and his plan upon planet Earth. Well, what is it that's restraining and keeping Satan at bay? There are some that have said that it's the Holy Spirit. That God is going to remove the Holy Spirit from the earth and that at that point, the floodgates of wickedness will then be unstoppable. I would challenge that. And here's here's on what points that I would challenge that. First of all, the Bible tells us clearly that after this man of sin is revealed, after wickedness you know is given free reign that after that the holy spirit will still be on the earth because jesus said that when during the tribulation those that are on the earth are brought to testify that are brought basically to the gallows he said do not premeditate that which you will speak because it will be given to you by the Holy Spirit in that time. So if the Holy Spirit isn't around, then how is that possible? Second of all, number two, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says this. Listen carefully. It says, no man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, you cannot get saved without the Holy Spirit. You can't say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that there will be an innumerable multitude of people that get saved during the tribulation, after the Antichrist comes. So how can people get saved by the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit isn't here? 
And then number three, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 says this. Listen carefully. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its savor, in other words, if the salt is not salty, wherewith shall it be salted? Now the it is not the salt, but the earth. Wherewith shall the earth be salted if the salt loses its savor? And then he says this. He says, it, the earth, is thenceforth good for nothing but to be trodden underfoot of men. In other words, listen, the only preserving factor that keeps wickedness at bay in this world is the salt. Who is the salt? You are the salt. That's right, the salt of the earth. But if the salt is removed then the earth is good for nothing but to be trodden under the foot of men. So that which preserves, and you could argue with me, I I probably won't fight with you, I'll just say, okay, you know. That which preserves, I believe, not the Holy Spirit, but rather the church of Jesus Christ, the presence of the church. And that once the church that is restraining evil, that is keeping Satan's plan from coming to a head, that once it is removed... That it will be then, at that point, that the Antichrist, the wicked one, will be revealed and the plan will go forward. The tribulation will begin and and, and Satan, the man of sin, will come forward and, and all the rest. And so what is restraining? What is keeping back? Why hasn't Satan been able to complete his plan? Because God's still got light in this world. And you cannot have darkness in complete control when light is still present. Because darkness and light are mutually exclusive. They cannot be in the same place at the same time. So God will remove the influence of light from the world, and then the Antichrist will come forward, and the Bible says that he will prosper, that he will be able to accomplish that which um, he pleases. So what is withholding is the church. Here's the point of all this. is At the end of the day, it is Satan that controls the destiny of human government. The Bible is very clear that Satan is the one who is the prince of the power of the air. Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert, the devil took Jesus up into an exceeding high mountain, and it says that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and the glory of them. And he said, all of this will I give you if you will bow down and worship me. And he said this, He said, for it is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. Therefore, all will be yours if you will bow down and worship me. And that's when Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. But Jesus didn't argue and say, yeah, right, Satan. I hold it all. Because Satan was right. He is the one that controls the destiny of human government. He's the usurper. In Genesis chapter 6, there is a very interesting passage of Scripture. The, the, the period is the days prior to the flood. And the scene is set for us concerning the wickedness that brought on the flood. And, and the Bible tells us in those opening verses of Genesis chapter 6, it says that the sons of God went into the daughters of men And the offspring of that, it says, were men of renown. 
that there were powerful, mighty men, giants of men that were the result of the sons of God going in to the daughters of men. Now, the debate that has raged throughout the, the ages is who are the sons of God? Because there are some that say, well, the sons of God are the godly descendants of Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve. And that the sons of men are the ungodly women that were the offspring of Cain. And so you have the godly offspring of Seth intermarrying with the ungodly women of Cain and that the result of that somehow were these giants, these men of renown. The problem with that is that you never see any evidence at any other time of godly men marrying ungodly women and the result is renown. <laughs> you, know, you, you don't see that. So that, that theory is there, but it doesn't hold much water. Number two, second theory, is that the sons of God refer to fallen angels. That fallen angels intermarried with ungodly women, and that the result of that was men of renown. And, and that's the Nephilim theory, you know, that there, that there are these this intermix of demonic and human DNA, you know, and that it produces things. Now, th there are many people that hold that view. The problem with that view is that the Bible is very clear that angels, demons, cannot reproduce in that way. They are not flesh like you and I. They don't have seed like you and I. And so that Jesus even said that, that, that once we go to heaven, we are like unto them in that we do not reproduce. And so there's a problem with that theory. There's a third theory that I find to be the most plausible, and that is this. Is that in that time, what happened is that powerful demons possessed certain men that were on the planet. Men like Nimrod. Men that were powerful, men of authority, and that they were possessed by these demons. And these demons are spoken of again in Jude, again in Peter, that they are held, reserved under chains in darkness because of, you know, the wickedness, the power that they possessed. That they possessed these men and that these men then married whomsoever they would, these daughters of men. And that the result of that, these demon-possessed men, with these women, that their offspring produced an elite line of satanically controlled people that became the rulers of the various governments and societies of the world. Now again, that's one theory, one thought, one you know, interpretation. To me, it's the most plausible. And as we look at the history of men and the history of Satan's involvement in human government, we see that he has had a very strong hand in the things that have taken place from Babylon to Egypt through Rome and even in these days in the United States of America. You know, and so we see that Satan holds the cards when it comes to these things and he is setting everything up, spreading the net. Like we said at the beginning, that you know, the, the, the rebel will obtain by flattery and by deception and he will spread the net and when the point comes that he can then pull in the reins, he will then do so. And so that's something for you to chew on. You can read those verses and uh, you can desire to believe whichever of those three or you can even make up your own if you want to. Uh, but no one will listen to you. <laughs> so Satan has worked long and hard to grab control of human governments. 
and he's done a good job. The last one to fall, in my opinion, is the United States of America. I believe that we're there on the cusp of that. It's taken a hundred years, but for the past hundred years, Satan has been working nonstop and behind the scenes and in very, you know, obviously subtle ways, he has spread the net to, to watch things fall in our country. And the next stop on Satan's train, his plan, is a global system, one world government, as we'll see in Revelation here. And you say, well, how is, how is that going to happen? How is Satan going to bring the, 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 the 170 or something nations of the world under one banner and cause all borders to be uh, eliminated and, and to bring in such a change like that? You know, how, how would something like that happen? Things like that can happen very quickly, very easily, you know, under the right circumstances. It doesn't take, you know, someone to go and, and, and to get petitions signed and to win people to an opinion. That takes years. I mean, that would take years and years and years and years and years. And you would have people that would never give in to it, uh, nevertheless. You know, you, what, you want the United States and Mexico to, to be one country? You know, we would never do that, you know. But under the right circumstances, that something like that can happen very quickly. You know, we've all heard of the what's that Hegelian, the Hegelian dialect, right? The crisis, uh, the what is it? Someone help me here. The crisis, something solution. You know that, that you never waste a crisis. That all it takes is the right crisis, and and then the solution is right there. You know, we've we've seen that we've seen that in the Obama administration, out in the open like you've never seen before. You know, oh, there's a problem with health care. Oh, hey, we just happen to have this 2,000-page bill ready. <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> you know, there's no time to read it, uh, you know, but here, sign it. <laughs> you know, and that, well, what do we see? We see that that was in place already, and all it took was the right moment to bring it all in, and there it is. Same with gun control. We're, yeah, there it is. Never let a crisis go to waste, <laughs> you know. But we see it with gun control. All of this already in place. The crisis happens and boom, there it is. No time to think about it, debate about it, talk about it. Here it is. And so what does it take? It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. So what will it take? Turn to Revelation 6. If you follow the progression of the book of Revelation, the rapture of the church happens in chapter 4, verse 1. You look, read the language of what what takes place there in chapter 4, it, it's pretty clear just in the first three verses. The trumpet sounded, the door is opened, the voice has come up here. You know, the, 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 the picture is perfect. Chapters 4 and 5 show the church in heaven. The church is there. Every, you read chapter 5, the latter verses, it says, every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered there around the throne. That's the church. Israel is one tribe, one tongue, one nation. But every tribe, tongue, and nation is the church. No, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. So the church is in heaven in chapter 5. Chapter 6 begins the tribulation, that seven-year period of time. And the, 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 the event, listen carefully, the event that marks the beginning of the tribulation is the revelation of the Antichrist. The church will never know who the Antichrist is. We can guess. Maybe some will have a pretty good idea, but we won't know because he will not officially be set forth until after the church is already removed. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it's clear there that he, that is the Antichrist, will make a covenant with many for seven years, a seven-year treaty. 
That will be the revelation of the Antichrist. And if the church is on earth when that covenant is signed, then we will know clearly who the Antichrist is, and we will know the exact day and hour of the second coming. Because Daniel tells us to the day after that when everything is going to happen. You know, another study for another time. But what's the first thing that happens? Revelation chapter 6, notice with me in verse 1. He says, and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. So the seal that he's talking about here is this seven-sealed scroll that was handed to the Lamb back in chapter 5. We understand this to be the title deed to planet Earth. Only a deed would be written on both sides, and such is this scroll. And it's sealed with seven seals. And as he breaks the lamb, as the lamb breaks the first of seven seals, it tells us in verse 2, he says, And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. A crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. The rider on the white horse is the Antichrist. This is the revelation of the Antichrist. You say, well, I heard before that this is Jesus Christ, the rider on the white horse. Listen, (laughs) that's Revelation 19. You want to see the other rider on the white horse, you read about what Jesus looks like when he rides on a white horse. It's a completely different picture. Not one who's given a crown carrying a bow, but one who's got a vesture dipped in blood with the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords written upon his thigh, with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, being followed by the armies of heaven and putting to an end the rebellion of Satan in a single moment by the word that comes out of his mouth. This is not that rider. (laughs) This is a counterfeit. White horse. He has the appearance of a hero. He has the appearance of a man with all the answers. A crown is given to him. It's not his, like with Jesus, where it's his. He owns it. This crown is given to him as this man will be given power, we'll see in Revelation chapter 13. And he has a bow and not a sword. And he goes forth conquering and to conquer. Jesus said, it is finished. There is nothing left to conquer. The battle is over. The war is won. This isn't Jesus, this is Antichrist. And so the first seal, the first stroke of the tribulation will be the revelation of the Antichrist. That will be immediately followed by three more horsemen. Notice, verse 3. It says, And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon, to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. And so world war will break out as the rider on the red horse goes forth at the breaking of the second seal, and people will begin to kill each other. Then number three in verse five. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see that thou hurt not the oil 
and the wine. Now, a penny or a denarius, a denarii in the Greek, was a day's wage in Bible times. You recall, Jesus said when he told the parable of the vineyard and the workers, he agreed with them for a penny, a denarii, a day. So it's a day's wage. And so what he's saying here is that when this rider goes forth, a day's work will earn you a loaf of bread. It speaks of economic collapse. That there will be a time of economic ruin worldwide that will be so great that man will work all day just to put food in his, his belly for that day. A loaf of bread for a day's wage, a day's work. But hurt not the oil and the wine. The rich will still be the rich. It's always that case. Those that have the delicacies will have their delicacies even in that day. So famine and economic collapse and disaster at the rider on the black horse. And then uh, verse 7, it says, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice come forth and say, Come and see. And I looked and behold a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with dearth and with the beasts of the earth. So one quarter of the world's population is wiped out in one stroke at the breaking of the fourth seal, the going forth. This speaks of absolute disaster. Absolute disaster. You have... War breaking out all over the planet. You have economic collapse and famine. And then you have death coming by all of the things mentioned there in verse 8. And all of that happens quickly. It happens, it, it, it's, it's like Isaiah describes the bulging of the wall. You know, if you've if you ever been somewhere where there's a brick wall and, and, and the, 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 the force of, of the eroding earth behind it causes that wall to begin to herniate. You ever seen something like that? And over time, every year, there's just a little bit more, a little bit more. And you watch the, the bow of that wall just go out just a little bit more. And what happens at one point? It eventually, it gives way, and then it just, it just lets loose. And that's, that's what we see happening here. And in this point, when, when those seals are broken, everything that's been building up, what I believe, everything we're watching build up right now, we're watching the wall bulge in all the things that we're watching on the news, the things that are going on in the world, the wall is bulging. And I believe that what this is talking about is the culmination of all of those things. I also believe that the rapture will happen first, that the, that the culmination will happen after, you know, the, the, the church is removed. But what does this do? This presents the perfect crisis now for the solution to be brought in. What's the solution? Turn to Revelation chapter 13. Now, we were remember, we were in Revelation 12 last week, remember? Talking about Satan. That's where we saw those first 3 things that he is out to uh, uh to first of all deceive, to then accuse and also to persecute and now to bring into subjection. And that's what we have in chapter 13 as what we have described for us here is now the, 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 the final uh, enthroning or coronation of the Antichrist. Chapter 13, verse 1. You guys all with me? Of course, no one's going to say 
He says, <laughs> and I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power. Now, we saw in chapter 12 last week exactly who the dragon is. It's spelled out in no uncertain terms. He laid hold on that dragon, that old serpent who is called the devil and Satan. <laughs> so we know who the dragon is. And thus now, listen carefully, we understand where the Antichrist gets his power. He gets his power from the dragon. He gave him his power, his seat, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now, I don't know what this means. You know, people have said, is he gonna, will it be an assassination attempt that he will miraculously recover from? Will it be a blow to his kingdom or to his dominion, you know, to his head, you know? Who knows? I don't know. I know that, 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 that at some point this will make sense. We'll say, yeah. We'll be in heaven saying, yeah, you know, but <laughs> we'll, we'll understand it for what it is. But it says that the whole world wondered after him. Now, imagine for a minute. Under what circumstances would the whole world rally behind a single leader? I mean, that sounds absurd, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, no one rallies behind, you know, all one person. Unless, of course, you're Barry. You know, for some reason, everybody likes Barry, Barack, you know. But, 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 but no, but, <laughs> but really, you know, no one does. But under what circumstance would they? See, if everything that takes place back in chapter 6 begins to happen, war, famine, death, on a degree that's unparalleled, unheard of, and then someone comes on the scene that can stop it, that can bring a, a, a stop to the hemorrhage <laughs> of the departure of all of life, that can bring an economic solution, you know, and, and actually put food on people's tables, and take away the fear that, are, am I going to be the next one to die in this whole thing? It's not real hard to win people's allegiance at that point. And so the whole world wondered after the beast. And it says in verse 4, And they worshipped the dragon that gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue for forty and two months. So for the second, that speaks of the second half of the tribulation, the three and a half years beyond. And notice it says continue, that he'll already be in power and he will continue now for forty-two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And notice verse 7, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints, those that get saved during the tribulation, as well as the 144,000 evangelists that we read about in chapter 7, 
Well, you can go back and read about it in chapter 7, you know. And then notice the, these words. It says, And power was given unto him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Underline that. Because he will be a one world ruler. He will have dominion over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. One world governor, one world ruler. What Nimrod failed to do, what Nebi was unable to accomplish, what Pharaoh couldn't bring to pass, what Herod couldn't do, you know, what Hitler couldn't do, this man will succeed in doing because the restraining force is gone and this is his time. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of the uh, uh, of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. And so then in verses uh, 11 through 14, and now we are out of time, so I won't read those verses, but you can read those verses. It, it talks about the false prophet, that there will be another, uh, another man that comes on the scene that, that acts as a prophet speaking on behalf, acting on behalf of the Antichrist and of, of Satan. It's, a, it's an incredible picture of the anti-trinity. You see the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. You know, it's just as you have the Father and the Son and the Spirit, you have this, this unholy trinity here pictured. You see that there is an image that is made uh, that, that, that miraculously is brought to life, that, that, that brings further deception. And then, you know, that famous passage at the end of the chapter about the mark of the beast. That he, verse 16, and this speaks of the one world economy. Um, notice in verse 16, it says that he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the number or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is, you know, 603 score and 6 or 666. And, and again, you know, everybody takes their shot at what that means and what it is. And we don't, we just don't know uh, exactly because none of us have any wisdom. <laughs> Apparently. No. So you understand what's going on here. This is what he has been working towards. This is the mystery of iniquity that Paul spoke of. And it's what Satan has been seeking to do from the foundation of the time that he was cast into the earth is to bring the whole world into subjection to himself. And he will do that by employing a man who he will raise into that place of supreme power who is controlled supremely by Satan. And Satan will deceive and receive the worship of all of those that are lost there. Um, we're, we're, we're in overtime here, but turn, turn the page just a minute to chapter 14. I want to show you something. Look with me at verse 9 there in chapter 14. It says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. That means it's not diluted. You'll get the full weight, the full concentration of God's wrath into the cup of his indignation, 
and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receives the mark of his name. So if anyone takes the mark of the beast, whatever that is, they will be, in doing so, consciously denying Jesus Christ forever. That there will be some clause in the contract that won't be hidden in the terms and conditions, but it will be clear that to take that mark, you are worshiping the dragon, the beast, and you are denying forever your stake to the claim of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so that's where that passage is when they say, you know, don't take the mark. That's why <laughs> you don't take the mark. You know? We tell our loved ones, okay, if you're not going to listen to me now, once I'm gone, don't take the mark. <laughs> you know? uh, anyway, destiny of Satan, as we just close here. Um, turn to Revelation 19. Where does he end up? This grand plan, this wise rebel, this usurping dragon. Let's see how that works out for him. Notice in Revelation chapter 19, verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast, I love this, so matter of fact. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the battle is, that's it. The period at the end of that sentence is the battle. Now, here's, here's what happens after that. Verse 20, it says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image, and these both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all fowls were filled with their flesh. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, heaven having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed, set free, for a season, a little season. That, that should turn your check engine light on, <laughs> cause the question mark to arise in your mind. And then he talks about the thrones and the dominions of those, and you skip all the way then to verse 7, chapter 20. He says, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. 
And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was, now here's the, the doom. This is it. Ready? The, the whole study. We've been sitting here for 60 minutes now, all to come to this point right here. Where does Satan end up? Uh, he started as the anointed cherub that covers. Where does he finish? Verse 10. It says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that's it. That's the end. That's the demise of our enemy. That's where he finishes. Somebody said one time, when Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. <laughs> Words well spoken. Because he doesn't win. We know, we know what's at the end of the book. You know. So his plan, intense, involved, detailed, but failed and flawed. We win. <laughs> We're out of time. <laughs>